Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. In the next three episodes, I'm going to focus on the history of another park challenge, that of logging in the park. Controversy over this is almost as old as the park itself. Though truth be known, public attention didn't really start until the 1930s, when logging started to intrude on recreationists' enjoyment of the park. This I'll talk more about in the third part of this three-part series. In part one, I'm going to focus mostly on the mechanics of the square, timber, and saw log businesses. In part two, we'll focus on the life in the Cambu shanties with my guest, Roderick Mackay, And in part three, I'll talk about the river drives and getting the timber to market, the various controversies since 1930s, and generally where things are with the issue today. Over the years, there have been a number of books about logging, though many are now out of print. Logging is included in the visitor center displays and, of course, is a subject of the Algonquin Logging Museum near the East Gate. There's even a video, accessible via the Friends of Algonquin Park, that does a pretty good job of presenting a then-and-now picture. For these three episodes, I've borrowed extensively from several sources from two authors, Roderick Mackay, known as Rory, and Donald McKay, who've done excellent research on this topic. Rory's four books of note include A History of the Park, Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, that was published in 2018, his 2016 reprint of his original Spirits of the Little Bonacheur, his 2015 book, More About J.R. Booth, Lumberman, Railroad Builder, Industrialist, and Great Canadian, and his 2015 book, More About the Cambu Shanty, Home to the Shantymen of the 19th Century. The second key source is Donald McKay's 1978 book, Lumberjacks. Rory's books are all available on the Friends of Algonquin Park online bookstore. Don's is out of print, but there is a Kindle version, and a few pricey used editions are available on Amazon.ca. I've tried to reference specific quoted passages as much as possible, but acknowledge that I have not done so consistently. So, to set the stage, as I think I've already shared before, thoughts of setting aside protected land in Ontario was first proposed in 1878. Those notions were reinforced as a result of an Ontario land surveyor, James Dixon, who surveyed into detailed field notes around that time. A Royal Commission to study the issue was created in 1892. In 1893, the Ontario Legislature passed the Algonquin National Park Act. The park's charter included preserving the headwaters of the watersheds and the native forest, providing an area for forestry experimentation, protecting game and fur-bearing animals, fish and birds, and serving as a health resort and pleasure ground for the benefit, advantage, and enjoyment of the people of the province. It's interesting to note that in 1893, when the park was created, it was assumed that logging would stop when the pine were all gone. This was because pine were hard to naturally regenerate, especially if the land were overtaken by fire two or three times, and they took over a hundred years to mature. John Bosher wrote in 2011 a book called Two Billion Trees and Counting, that recounted the life of Edmund Zabitz, one of the first to fight for the protection of Ontario forests. In it, he noted that the demise of the valuable white pine forests across North America 
was shrugged off by most logging interests at the time with the view that such a fate was inevitable. They also argued that fire destroyed far more forested land than their logging ever did. Having said all that, in 1897, an Ontario Royal Commission was established to investigate and report on the subject of restoring and preserving the growth of white pine and other timber trees. It recommended that fire protection be increased and that only pine larger than 12 inches in diameter be cut. Alas, it's almost impossible to talk about logging separate from the economic implications both then and now. Even though the focus today is on sustainability and maintaining Algonquin's ecological integrity, as well as profitable support of the regional economy. However, before one can weigh in on current discussions, I think it's important to understand the history of the logging effort and the way of life it supported in Ontario beginning in the early 1800s. It's just a wonderful story of men and might and cold and comradeship. So on that note, why don't you sit back, put your feet up, and let's start with imagining you're a ship's captain in the Britain's Royal Navy. With eyeglass in hand, you're surveying the ocean scene before you from the bridge of your square-rigged sailing ship. Supporting the sails is a tall, perhaps as high as 75 to 100 feet, or 22.9 to 30.5 meters, mast made of a single pine tree. Main masts for the British Navy had to measure about 2 feet, or 0.6 meters, around the base, and a foot and a half, or 0.46 of a meter, at the top. Where the wood came from is not something that you likely spent very much time thinking about. It's hard to imagine that something as simple as a big stick of wood could fundamentally change a country. For Canada, that stick of wood, and many thousands like it, surely did. Until 1806, England's usual source of wood for its navy and merchant sailing fleets came from the countries around the Baltic Sea. But that fall, Napoleon Bonaparte initiated a large-scale embargo against British trade, hoping that by bringing the British economy to its knees, he could then successfully invade. Alas, though trade with Europe did decline in the following years, England shrugged it off and instead turned its attention to the growing trade with North America and South America. Up until that point, fur had been Canada's number one export. But according to Donald McKay in his 1978 book Lumberjacks, in 1811 alone, Canada shipped 4,000 masts and 200,000 loads of pine from Atlantic ports, and 500 ships set sail from Quebec City alone, with over 75,000 loads. In those days, a load was equal to the amount of oak that could be loaded on a cart and pulled by a single horse. Generally, this was about 50 cubic feet or 1.42 cubic meters of wood, or about the equivalent of half of the wood cut from a good-sized pine tree. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. 75,000 loads equals about 35,000 trees that had to be cut, shaped, and somehow transported to Quebec City by hand. In addition, 500 ships in one season set sail for Britain loaded with wood, not furs. Another interesting sidebar fun fact for those interested in the economics of the wood trade was that carrying wood across the Atlantic was three times as expensive as it was to carry it from the Baltic forests. And also only one trip a season could be undertaken versus the four to six trips that were possible 
from Russia or Norway. In order to shift operations to import more costly wood from Canada, British firms convinced the British Parliament to establish a tariff against Baltic lumber. In this they were successful, and in 1805 the tariff was increased by 2.5 times that of the 1795 rate. In 1810 they successfully lobbied to increase it to 3.5 times, and again in 1814 to 6.5 times. This didn't totally compensate for the fluctuating timber prices, but it did help. The first known story of logs being transported from the Ottawa area to Quebec City took place in 1806. In 1800, a man named Philemon Wright had brought a group of colonists from Massachusetts and settled on the north side of the Ottawa River, known as the Grand River at that time, at Chaudière Falls, which much later became Hull, Quebec. Becoming aware of the growing demand for wood, Wright made a raft of 20 cribs of 700 square timbers in order to deliver 6,000 rough-hewn barrel staves all the way to Quebec City. The journey took two months and was awful, but is a wonderful story of perseverance as nobody thought he could do it. As he shared in 1832 with the Lower Canada House of Assembly, as I had now been six years in the township of Hull and expended my capital, it was time for me to look out for an export market to cover my imports. No export market had been found, as not a stick of timber had ever been sent from that place down those dangerous rapids. I then agreed to try to get some timber ready, and to try, and accordingly I then set out to examine the rapids quite down to the Isle of Montreal. The habitants, who had been settled there for nearly 200 years, told me it was not possible for me ever to get timber to Quebec by the route on the north side of the Isle of Montreal, as such a thing had never been done, nor was it possible if it ever could be done. I said I would not believe it until I had tried it. I prepared my rafts for the spring and come from Hull down my new discovered channel for the Quebec market. From Hull we came down all the rapids of the Long Sioux, to the island of Montreal, and the river St. Lawrence. It was a new thing, but a costly one to me. Being a total stranger to navigating rapids, we were 36 days getting down, as our rafts would often run aground and cause us a great deal of labor to get them off again, and I had no person that was acquainted with the channel, but have from experience learned the manner of coming down. We can now oftentimes come down in 24 hours." Though Wright missed that year's selling season, he was eventually able to sell what he brought and was encouraged. Note that a really fun read is the fictional retelling of Wright's journey from Hull to Montreal, which can be found in Ron Corbett's One Last River Run. In Corbett's book, he recounts his adventures in organizing and documenting the 100-year anniversary of the last commercial square timber raft to float down the Ottawa River, which happened in 1908. By the 1820s, Canada was supplying three-quarters of England's timber, with square timber coming from as far away as the upper reaches of the Ottawa River, where Pembroke is today, and many of its tributaries, including the Gatineau, Rideau, Madawaska, Bonachure, and Petawawa Rivers. For 20 years, Philemon Wright was the quote-unquote king of the Ottawa, and with his sons were the largest lumbering outfit on the Ottawa River, often sending 20 rafts each summer down to Quebec City. 
Originally, people and supplies were carried up rivers in large birch bark canoes. By the 1860s, these were replaced by 30 to 60 foot or 9.1 to 18.3 meter boats with wooden flat or V-shaped hulls called pointers. Designed and built by John Coburn, pointers had 16 oars, one per man, as well as two large paddles for steering for the bow and stern men. When fully loaded with 20 to 30 men and supplies, these craft were able to move at a pace of about 2 to 3 miles an hour. They had a shallow draft, only a few inches, and were very maneuverable. They could be pivoted with just one tug of an oar, even when heavily loaded, which is, I guess, why they became so popular. By the way, there's an example of one at Station 10 at the Algonquin Logging Museum. At portages, everything would have to be unloaded and hauled to the next lake or around whatever obstruction was in the way. McKay, in his Lumberjack's book, suggests that some of the strong men could carry two barrels of flour weighing in total 250 pounds, or 113 kilograms, over portages that were over a mile in length. Now think about that for a minute. One man carrying 250 pounds or 113 kilograms of foodstuffs on a barely discernible root and rock-filled path in the wilderness. In winter, things were a bit easier as sleighs with horses could be used to transport people and goods over ice roads across lakes. A few years ago, I found a wonderful old map of Victoria Lake, which is located just east of the park boundary. It shows an 1870 to 1880s ice road map that went up the west side of Victoria Lake and then overland to what was later J.R. Booth's depot farm near what is now Booth's Lake. When Canada became a nation in 1867, the lumber exports to the USA apparently surpassed square timber sales to England. There were now more than 150 steam sawmills in Ontario, as well as scores of old water-driven mills. The squared timber trade peaked in 1864 and disappeared by 1900. As pine suitable for square timber became harder and harder to find, spruce began to replace it and became eventually one of the backbone woods for the Ontario pulpwood industry. An 1872 report estimated that the main manufacturers at Chaudière Falls each acquired 150,000 logs in order to produce that year's target of 30 million board feet, or 71,000 cubic meters of lumber. The supplies needed to feed the 637 men who worked in the bush all winter Cutting the logs that those firms needed included 825 barrels of pork, 900 barrels of flour, 925 barrels of beans, 37,000 bushels of oats, 300 tons of hay, 3,750 gallons or 17,000 liters of maple syrup, 7,500 pounds or 3,400 kilograms of tea, 1,800 pounds or 850 kilograms of soap, 1,000 grindstones, 6,500 pounds or nearly 3,000 kilograms of tobacco, 75 boxes of axes, each holding a dozen, 60 cross-cut saws, 225 sleighs, 1,500 boom chains, 45 boats, 900 pairs of blankets, and the total cost was $54,367.50. The first known logging in the Algonquin Park area was in 1836 by James Wadsworth, 
who had obtained timber rights to cut pine on the Bonisher River from Round Lake to the river's headwaters, which is located today within Algonquin Park's borders. At a site on the Bonisher River known as the Fifth Chute, Wadsworth cleared land that he bought from Grégoire Bélanger, one of the earliest settlers in the area. Though locally known as the farm, Wadsworth originally used it as a lumbering depot, not for agriculture. Wadsworth went on to successfully log in the area for at least another 10 years. Fellow Irishman John Egan came to work for Wadsworth in 1836 and bought the farm from Wadsworth soon after. Egan built on the site a sawmill, a store, and in 1853 had the area surveyed and named it Eganville, which today is located about halfway between Renfrew and Pembroke. According to a 1925 article in the Ottawa Journal, as noted by Roderick Mackay in his book Spirits of the Little Bonachure, Egan was a striking man, tall, over six feet, well-built, well-proportioned, and a refined appearance. He had a handsome face with crisp, curly, dark hair. Egan had great business aptitude and great practical sagacity. He also had a tact of authority, and he could secure obedience without effort. He was liberal-minded, gentlemanly to agree in his manners, and was loved by his friends, whom he was ever ready to serve. Egan started his lumber company, John Egan and Company, at Aylmer in 1837, and proceeded to obtain timber limits to cut red pine also in the Bonisher area. He wasn't the only one. Others came along and obtained timber limits licenses to cut up the Petawawa River as far as Lake Traverse, and in the 1850s as far north as Cedar Lake. In his heyday, Egan was sending 55 rafts to Quebec City each summer, and was described by the Canadian Merchants Magazine as the, quote, Napoleon of the Ottawa, unquote, and by others as the, quote, King of the Ottawa Valley, unquote. In addition to saw and grist mills, Egan also spent considerable sums on the construction of dams and timber slides throughout his limits. He helped Alexander MacDonald, who also had limits in the area, construct a supply road from Eganville up the Bonashore River, which reached Radiant Lake in what is now Algonquin Park by 1852. He also established a 150-acre farm in an area northwest of Little Hogan Lake to supply his lumber camps with potatoes, oat, hay, and other agricultural produce. In 1851, his company was said to employ 2,000 men lumbering in the Ottawa Valley area, as well as hundreds of farmers who provided all the supplies needed for his 72 timber licenses, encompassing some 2,000 square miles of limits, including 1,700 horses and 200 oxen in the bush, and 400 other double teams for conveying supplies and forage. By 1854, he was said to have employed 3,500 men in a hundred lumber camps. In the opinion of the Canadian Merchants Magazine and Commercial Review of Toronto, Egan was the one, quote, who first gave a systematic business character to the lumber trade of the Ottawa. Before his day, lumbering on the Ottawa was nothing more than a wild venture, unquote. Unfortunately, lumbering was very much a boom-and-bust business, and after 1847, the red and white pine markets declined considerably, with exports and prices falling 30% by the 1850s. Egan's health began to fail, and he died of cholera in 1857 at the young age of 46. One reason Egan matters is that his timber limits were eventually sold in 1867 to John Rodolphus Booth, known as J.R. Booth, who went on to make a fortune from them. 
The Ontario government held the Egan Estate Timber Limits Auction at Russell House in Ottawa. In 1858, Booth had leased and later bought an unused water-driven sawmill on the Ontario side of the Chaudière Falls in Ottawa. The next year, he won a contract to supply pine for the roof of the newly being built Parliament buildings nearby. With that success, Booth realized that he needed to secure adequate wood supply for his sawmill and others that he later acquired. With this intent, Booth went into the lumber business in a big way. In order to ascertain the quality of the Egan Estate timber limits, Booth sent out his cousin, Robert Booth, to survey the timber. According to a biography, J.R. Booth, lumberman, railroad builder, industrialist, and great Canadian, by Algonquin Park history writer Roderick Mackay, Robert Booth's recommendation was to buy at any price, as the pines stand like grass for number and for quality they are unexcelled. Booth appeared at the auction, dressed in simple laborer's clothes, accompanied by his bank manager. He stood firm in the robust bidding and ended up paying $45,000 for what became called the Egan Estate. Later, he rejected a bid for $1.5 million, and for years, his Egan Estate yielded no less than 150,000 logs in a cutting season, and often upwards of 300,000. In his heyday, Booth was said to have employed over 4,000 men at his lumber camps and owned over 4,000 square miles of timber limits. With the success of his Egan Estate gamble, he did so again with his hunches that United States' demand for sawn lumber would replace the British Navy and that railways would be a cost-effective solution for getting logs to the sawmill from the bush and from the sawmills to market. He went on to invest in both the Canada Atlantic Railway that went from Ottawa to Vermont and the Ottawa Arne Pryor and Perry Sound Railway that went from Ottawa through the park to Depot Harbor on Georgian Bay. The end result, though, was that the cutting of timber in the Ottawa Valley and environs was intense and anything of suitable size was cut. History suggests that there were at least three sweeps through Algonquin before better forest management practices were introduced. White and red pine were taken out in the mid-1800s, to which was added hardwoods at the turn of the 19th century, and a third sweep of all of the above in the 1930s and 40s. Few original pine stands exist today, but there are a few. One such location is about one and a half kilometers from the Raps Dam just east and south of Big Crow Lake. Though mostly mature hardwoods, there's a small stand of enormous white pines, some over 35 meters high. I had a chance to venture into that area around 2012 when it was, it was quite something to see. Another stand of original red pine can be found on the east side of Dixon Lake. According to the Algonquin Canoe Roots map, those trees are over 340 years old. Another place to see some of these pine beauties is the Big Pines Trail, a 2.9-kilometer loop that visits some beautiful old-growth white pines and the remains of an old logging camp dating from the 1880s. As mentioned previously, around 1864, the demand for square timber peaked. According to Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, the Colonial Lumber Company, operating on the Petawawa River, was one of the last to do so. In 1912, its cut logs were being taken out by Tote Road, and sleigh to Brule train station and then via the Grand Trunk Railway to Ottawa. The last trainload of lumber for the British Admiralty 
for boost limits in Algonquin departed in 1929. Alas, red and white pine trees didn't grow like a field of corn and weren't all that easy to find. According to W.H. Smith's 1852 report, Canada, Past, Present, and Future, being a historical, geographical, geological, and statistical account of Canada West, pine were found in small stands with an average find rate of two to three stands per ten miles. Within each stand, according to Samuel Revens, who testified in front of a select committee on timber duties at the British House of Commons in 1836, only one or two suitable trees could be found per acre. Suitable in the early days meant that the trees were tall, some as many as 175 feet or 53 meters high, had straight grains with relatively few knots, and were branchless to as high as 100 feet or 31 meters. Estimates at the time had them in the range of 250 to 500 years old. As a side note, one story shared was of a tree cut in the Trent River area, it was said to be the largest stick of square timber ever cut. At 7 feet 6 inches, or 2.4 meters in circumference, it was apparently such a giant that according to Don McKay and Lumberjacks, every man in the shanty, cook included, got on the piece and danced jigs and reels and hornpipes on its surface to the music of the fiddle. Sounds like a very tall tale, but fun to imagine. As described by Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, in order to make square timber, normally a crew of seven was needed, including a feller who cut down the tree, a lineman who determined the dimensions to which the log was to be squared, two or three scorers who cut off the big chunks of wood to make the round log square, and two hewers who planed the squarish log perfectly smooth. The feller would use a felling axe and make a wide cut on the side of the tree in the direction to which they intended it to fall. Tree fellers used an axe with a narrow head or pole, which weighed as much as the blade and thus gave more weight to their strokes. The axes weighed 3 to 5 pounds, or 1.4 to 2.3 kilograms, with a hardwood handle of hickory or maple. They would fit the handle themselves and would grind the blade to a fan-shaped edge on a slowly turning grindstone every night. The feller could steer the fall direction of the tree by the size and angle of the notch undercut on the side of the tree where it was expected to fall. The notch was cut about a quarter of the way through the tree, horizontal at the bottom, and sloped up at an angle of 40 degrees. A good lumberjack prided himself on the smoothness of his axe cuts. The final cut, called the back cut, was made on the side away from the fall. It didn't quite meet the first notch, but formed a narrow hinge of wood, which controlled the tree as it came down. As the tree was coming down, the fellers had to be sure to jump back a number of feet, as it wasn't unusual for the tree butt to lash upwards or backwards, when the branches hit the ground. They also had to stay aware of dead branches that potentially could fall from above. Many things could influence how a tree fell, such as the difference in the grain, the growth of the branches, the health of the tree, and whether it had any rotten parts. Once the tree was down, the lineman figured out how much of it was usable. If suitable for a ship's mast, the original growth tree would be cut into a single 75 to 80 foot length but most produced two 40-foot or 12-meter square timbers, sometimes three. 
The rough bark was then removed using a hoe-like rossing iron. Then a string was laid down from one end of the log to the other and a chalk line drawn along the log. The scorers then stood on top of the log and used long-handled scoring axes to cut deep vertical notches every four feet, or 1.2 meters or so, almost to the marked line, and would knock off blocks of wood between the notches. Then another set of notches along the log would be cut in such a way that most of the wood to the chalk line was removed. This process was incredibly wasteful with, on average, more than a third of the best wood removed and left to rot on the forest floor. It wasn't until the 1860s, when crews started to run out of big trees, that the process changed, and octagonal or waney rather than square timber was acceptable. For waney timber, the corner edges of each log were beveled and not totally squared off. This reduced significantly the amount of waste. It resulted in a log with four main sides and four small symmetrical sloped edges at the corners. Hewing was an art, and a master hewer could hew 14 inches with each stroke and finish the surface off as smooth as if it had been planed at a sawmill. Hewers used a broad axe that generally weighed between 9 and 10 pounds, around 4.5 kilograms, with a 12-inch or 30-centimeter blade. It worked like a chisel and was used to, in essence, trim the side of the log to the chalk line. This hewing work was done only by the most experienced of the crew. A good hewer would spend an entire day making ready a 100-foot or 30.5-meter tall stick for the British Navy. Some honed their axes so sharp they could shave with them. Note that axe cuts were the cause of over half of the lumber accidents, and chewing tobacco, when warmed up, would often be used as a poultice, but I digress. Both ends of the log would then be shaped to a point in pyramid fashion so that they would glance off rocks and other obstacles in the river drives. These pointed ends were cut off once the stick reached Quebec City. On average, a good timber gang would cut and make six sticks a day on average, equaling about 400 cubic feet or 11 cubic meters of wood. But cutting trees hour after hour, day after day, was brutal work. One lumberman spoke of taking an hour and a quarter to fell one tree that was six feet or 1.8 meters in diameter at the ground and 140 feet or 42.7 meters high. As late as the mid-1800s, there were still a goodly number of those original majestic primeval pines around. They were frequently 15 feet or nearly five meters in circumference near the ground, often more than 120 feet or nearly 37 meters in height, and free of branches for another 70 to 80 feet or 21 to 24 meters. In later decades, the amount of wood a man had cut was chalked on a bucking board at the bunkhouse or shanty wall, and there was constant competition to head that list even though it brought no bonus. It was a matter of pride and prestige, I suppose. Another interesting tidbit is that apparently lumbermen never used the same technique on each tree because every tree, quote-unquote, was different. According to William Savard, a lumberman from Chicoutimi, Quebec, a lumberjack never cuts the same tree twice, that is to say, uses the same technique on each tree, for every tree is different. Engineers have written books on ways of cutting a tree, but you can only learn the techniques with practice. Felling a tree is not something a man can improvise no matter how strong he is. Physically, it isn't harder for an older man to cut a tree down than it is for a younger man. 
It's the way you do it that matters. Let's stop again for a moment and think about not just how hard that kind of work must have been, but also of how strong one must have had to have been in order to have done it all day after day, all winter long from November to March, with only Sundays off. As Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, went on to say, when markets shifted and the demand for lumber rather than square-cut timber increased, square-cut gangs were replaced with saw-log gangs. Saw-log gangs were composed of five men. Three would chop down the trees and then cut the top and branches off. Two others would cut the tree into suitable 12 to 14 foot or 3.6 to 4.8 meter lengths. Saw-logging was different and good saw-log gangs could cut as many as 15 logs a day. Later in the 1870s and 1880s, when cross-cut saws became the norm, saw-log gangs could cut as many as 100 logs a day. Now, cross-cut saws had been around since the early 1800s, but had a tendency to get stuck in the cut. It was only when sawdust and shavings were removed by rakers or cleaning teeth inserted between the cutting teeth that their use was more prevalent. Even so, the use of cross-cut saws was challenging, as wedges had to be used to keep the blade from getting stuck in the tree, and coal oil had to be dripped on the saw blade to remove the buildup of sticky pine sap. Early lumbermen came from England, Scotland, and Ireland, as well as the United States. Later, it became clear that French Canadians were the best workers, and they upped the fashion game. Much more colorful, most had shaggy hair, beards, and loved to dress in red, blue, and green jerseys, with knitted sashes tied around their waists, and red, green, or blue toques on their head. For almost a century, men born on Canadian bush farms and apprenticed as boys to the camps had been the core of the logging industry. It was usual for boys to go to school until they were 12 or 13 years of age and then go up to work in the bush. By the 1920s, the usual starting age was a little older at 16 or 17. As Charles McNamara of Arnprior wrote, I could always tell a shantyman fresh from the woods by his smell. Wool socks, wood smoke, tobacco, coal oil, sweat, and the hoarse smell of the Teamsters. Generally light-hearted, civil, noble, brave, and kind, and even daredevilish, some lumberjacks were known to be a bit rascally, incorrigible, and subject to a bit of thievery of pigs and lambs and chickens from nearby homesteads, especially on their way in or out of the bush, where whiskey was a major influencer. In the early years following the British Navy tradition, the men were allocated a daily allotment of rum. This they usually drank before breakfast. But by the mid-1800s, temperance had become a major movement, and by 1860, alcohol in camps was banned completely, the view being that a crowded bunkhouse or a rumbling load of logs was no place for drunks. Having said that, when prohibition wasn't in vogue, nothing stopped individuals from offering alcohol for sale on the supply roads along the Ottawa River. At one time, they were so full of taverns it was given the name the Whiskey Road. If there was a bottle in the window facing the road, then passers-by knew that alcohol was available within. Donald McKay, in his book Lumberjacks, shares one amusing story of one wife who was so upset that her husband came home with only $54.13 from a winter wage of $150.13. She asked the company to do an investigation. The results were not pleasant, including $30 spent on drinks and tobacco with friends, 
$7 for sightseeing, $17 for a suit worth only $7, new boots for $5 that were worth only $1.75 were a few of his key expenses. Needless to say, his wife was not happy. Shantymen, as they were called, generally earned about $17 to $18 a month. And at the beginning of each season, each man would buy moccasins, a pair of shoes, hip boots, woolen and buckskin mitts, woolen socks, a moleskin smock, red flannel and striped cotton shirts, flannel drawers, that's what underwear was called in those days, a woolen overshirt, gray cloth pants, a hat, and scotch cap. They had two kinds of moccasins. One type was short and the other type went up to the knee. Moccasins were usually made of beef hide, though sometimes of deerskin. Hard as a board when bought, the men would fill them with warm water and soak them overnight. When the leather was sufficiently flexible, they were rubbed with Neat's foot oil, which made them fairly waterproof and kept them soft for a long time. For those unaware, according to Wikipedia, Neat's foot oil is yellow oil rendered and purified from the shin bones and feet of cattle. For most of the 1800s, shantymen lived all winter in what were then called Cambu shanties, hence the name shantymen. Cambu shanties were square pine log dwellings with a unique scooped roof. In my next episode, I've invited writer of more about the Cambu shanty and expert in shanty life, Roderick Mackay, to come and share his insights as to what it was like to live all winter in such a dwelling with anywhere from 40 to 100 other men. Lumbermen burned tremendous amounts of energy, so they thought about food, dreamed about food, talked about food all the time. For months on end, their lives were work, eat, sleep, but their food was sometimes scant and often monotonous, at least in the early 1800s. Sometimes the men shot game on Sundays, but fresh food was rare. Once cut and shaped in the bush, the squared logs had to then be hauled to local waterways. In the early days, oxen were used because they could live on coarser food than horses, could withstand harsher treatment, were less excitable, and could go easily through swamps that would spook a horse. Wooden yokes were also cheaper than leather harness and didn't break as easily. Oxen also pulled more, though weren't as fast, they were much more difficult to manage. A fun book that describes in hilarious detail the orneriness of mules, a fellow challenging beast of burden to oxen, is in Rinker Buck's 2015 memoir, The Oregon Trail, that describes his recreated 1848 wagon train journey from Kansas City to Portland. As noted by Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, by the 1860s, oxen were replaced by horses. This was mostly because horses didn't need as much direction and could often drive themselves. The horses were big, 1,700 pounds or 770 kilograms, and they were usually Clydesdales, Percherons, or Belgians that were the norm. Men who owned their own skid horses were in demand and were the elite of the camp. They would lease themselves out to various lumber operations during the winter. These teamsters, as they were called, had to get up an hour before breakfast to feed and harness the horses, and the evening would have to spend time currying and watering them. In my new book, Governor Smith's Ontario Resort, Cal Taylor, whose grandfather, Wilmot Hamilton, was a logging teamster in the 1880s. As he shared, Grandpa told me many stories of his days driving a team, up before daylight to take care of the horses, He'd then have a big breakfast and then would grab some bread and meat, usually salty pork, with which to build some sort of sandwich. 
He then would drive the team of horses out to where the boys were cutting in the skidways. Usually he'd bury his lunch in the snow so it wouldn't freeze. Next, a pile of logs would be loaded on his sleigh one by one, and then after being chained down, he'd haul them away down to the lake. As noted by Roderick Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, the process of hauling those logs to nearby rivers and lakes was pretty complicated and backbreaking work. The logs were first pulled to what were called skidways, which were really just flat landing or staging areas spread out about 200 feet or 60 meters apart along the logging roads that were cut through the bush. The average skidway was 25 feet or 7.6 meters wide and 70 feet or 21 meters long and contained about 350 logs. At the skidway, a scaler would count and measure all of the logs and then they'd be rolled up wooden skids into a pile. In later years, each log would be stamped with a brand unique to that specific logging company. All winter long, water would be spread along the logging roads so that the sleighs that hauled the piles of logs could more easily traverse the roads. By spring, these ice roads would sometimes be as much as 12 inches or 31 centimeters thick. Surveyors tried to lay out the logging roads as flat as possible, as it was extremely difficult for horses to haul the sleighs full of logs uphill. On downhill slopes, the team drivers had to be very careful, as on a steep hill, the sleigh could easily overtake the horses and the driver. To make sure that didn't happen, a man was stationed at each hill with a pile of straw or hay, which would be thrown over the icy surfaces in just the right amounts to slow the sleigh down but not cause it to stick. On steeper hills, warm sand would be used for this same purpose. Of course, in later years, different kinds of ropes and pulleys were used to apply pressure and increase the resistance. It would, though, be an understatement to say that accidents weren't infrequent, as they were, and often deadly to both horse and man. All the logging roads ended up at a lake where the logs were then piled out on prepared lake ice. Preparation involved a row of snowshoe-clad men stomping back and forth across a section of the lake to pack down the snow and enable a thick layer of ice to be formed. Sometimes the logs would be piled on steep riverbanks so that in spring they could easily be just rolled into the rivers. By mid-March, the cutting and hauling of logs had to stop as spring's thaw was about to begin, though the towing of the logs across the lakes and the driving of them down rivers didn't usually begin until late April, once the ice had left the lakes. Cal Taylor, who I mentioned previously, shared in 1994 his experience as a child watching the loggers get logs to the lake. There was a very dangerous hill to go down to the lake. Usually chains were wrapped around the sleigh runners to slow down the sleigh on the downhill. It was usually sanded as well. The horses would be driven out onto the lake and logs unloaded and then back for another load until darkness halted the job. The area where the logs were dumped on the frozen lake was always kept rolled so the logs could be spread evenly. Around the outer perimeter of these logs ran other logs that were chained together, forming what they called a boom. In the spring of the year when the ice melted, this boom held the logs. I hope you've enjoyed this first part of a three-part series on the history of logging in the Ottawa Valley and the park, which is an important part of Ontario's history. As mentioned in previous episodes, I've posted a collection of photographs that I have on my website, algonquinparkheritage.com. There's also all kinds of videos on YouTube. Just put Algonquin Park Logging Museum as your search term. 
I also found some very interesting drawings and photographs on a website called www.bytown.net slash lumbering. Again, I'd like to give a very special shout out to Roderick Mackay for all of his work on this topic. Roderick's and all the other books that I've mentioned are available on the Friends of Algonquin Park online and in-person bookstores. As indicated previously, in the next part, my friend and colleague Roderick Mackay will join me and share what he knows about Cambu shanty life, which is where all of these lumberjacks lived in the 19th century. Not only has he researched them extensively, but he has also been an active participant in archaeological analysis of Cambu shanty archaeological sites and was a major contributor to the 1992 effort to build an exact replica that resides today at the Algonquin Logging Museum. In addition, for the last 24 years, Roderick has also been head blacksmith at the yearly Loggers Day extravaganza that happens each July at the Algonquin Logging Museum. Don't forget to drop in and say hi next time you visit. I'm not sure whether the event will happen this year, but hopefully in 2022. In the third part, I'll pick up the historical narrative again and focus on the river driving phenomena and how logging activities evolved in the 20th century to today.